So uh, welcome everybody. And uh, this is our third meeting of the third series of the Oxford Treasure Seminar. So it's, I'm really delighted to be able to introduce uh, David Gray today. Uh, David Gray is the Bernard J. Henley Professor of Religious Studies at Santa Clara University in California, where he teaches a wide range of Asian religions. And his research explores the development of tantric Buddhist traditions in South Asia and their dissemination in Tibet and East Asia, with a focus on the Yogini Tantras, a genre of Buddhist tantric literature that focused on female deities and yogic practices involving the subtle body. His publications include numerous journal articles and book chapters, an edited volume, as well as the Chakrasambara Tantra, a study and annotated translation published with the American Institute of Buddhist Studies in 2007, the Chakrasambara Tantra editions of the Sanskrit and Tibetan texts uh, with the same publisher, 2012, Illuminations of the Hidden Meaning, chapters one to 24, Mandala Mantra and the Cult of the Yoginis, again with the same publisher in 2017, and Illumination of the Hidden Meaning, part two, chapters 25 to 51, Yogic Vows, Conduct and Ritual Practice, with Wisdom Publications in 2019. So David, I'm really, really grateful you could come and speak to us today and uh, over to you. Uh, thank you so much, Rob. And I'm really, it's really a great pleasure to join you all. Uh, I've long had a great love and interest in the treasure, you know, terma phenomenon. Uh, probably none of you know this, but or maybe a couple people do, but I actually translated a treasure text, the, the Hlade Katang uh, from the, the Katang Atinga collection back when I was an undergraduate. There's an interesting story there, just really, really quickly. I went on the Wisconsin uh, year abroad in Nepal program in 1991 and 92. Because I was a nerdy you know, student who studied too hard over the summer learning Tibetan language in Madison, Wisconsin, and got A's in the class, they put me, they placed me with the one Tibetan family in Bodanath who didn't speak any English at all. <laughs> so I had three weeks of linguistic hell, you know, learning, you know, quickly, you know, how to speak Tibetan, at least, you know, sake tunge, eating and drinking language, <laughs> which came pretty quick, you know, in that crucible of, you know, necessity. But it just so happened that, you know, before I arrived, shortly before I arrived in Nepal, uh, Dilgo Kense Rinpoche had passed away and his funerary ceremonies, which basically took over a year, uh, were beginning in Nepal. So pretty much every, you know, Nyingma Lama in Jambudvipa and beyond were <laughs> pouring into Bodhanath. So it was really an amazing time to be there. I, uh, I went to go study first uh, uh, with one Lama who spoke English well, Chokinima Rinpoche, because he was already overflowing with English speakers, he sent me on to Trungu, Trungu Rinpoche, who didn't speak English at all. I guess he figured my Tibetan was good enough. I went to Trungu Rinpoche explaining how I really wanted to translate a Namtar. I had read The Life of Milarepa, you know, as an undergraduate at Wesleyan University, and I really wanted to translate something like that. So he suggested I work on the Vlade uh, Katang, which, I said, okay, <laughs> went and got a copy, started working on it. I later wondered if this was all a cruel joke because it turns out it's an incredibly difficult, obscure text written <laughs> in a very archaic form of Tibetan. 
But I worked my way through it. And by the end of the year, I produced a translation. Never published it because I still don't feel like I understand the text anywhere near the level of sufficiency to publish something like that. But I've at least had the experience of working through a terma text and, you know, attempting to understand it. That particular terma was, you know, discovered by Orgin Lingpa. Supposedly, you know, he discovered a single sheet of gold parchment, which contained the text. What does that mean? Clearly, it's not the full text, obviously, right? You know, was it a, a single sheet with Dakini script, perhaps, which he later decoded? But anyway, I bring this up because, you know, the Terma tradition has, the Nyingma tradition has such a rich kind of lore concerning uh, textual discovery and the ways in which textual discovery can occur. And I'm sure we're all familiar with the two main types of Terma, mind and birth, you know, Terma, the different types of discovery that entails. While this interested me a great deal when I was younger, I, you know, ended up when I went to grad school at Columbia University being sidetracked by, you know, Bob Thurman to work on Sarma materials, you know, ended up working on Chakrasamvara Tantra. I don't have any regrets about that, but, you know, my initial love of the Terma genre, you know, kind of was put on the back burner, you know, more or less permanently, although, <laughs> you know, I find myself drawn back again, back to it again and again both because of that rich lore about textual discovery, but another th thing I love about the Tibetan tradition is the rich biographical and autobiographical literature, you know, the nam Namtar genre. It's so amazing. What I wanted to talk about today were these kind of myths or lore concerning textual discovery in the Indian, you know, tantric, you know, literature. Unfortunately, it's much sparser. We don't have that kind of rich kind of biographical or autobiographical lore, nor do we have kind of in-depth kind of nitty gritty descriptions of exactly how do you discover a text. Uh, in spite of this, you know, there, there is some scraps of information here or there. And, you know, I recently completed a book manuscript on the Tantras looking at some of these myths and origin stories. And, so what I'll bring to your attention today are just a very small number of kind of passages that I found to be of interest. Now, as for my thesis, looking at the Indian materials, you can see, you can see hints of both the uh, both types of discovery, let's say, you know, discovery of actual texts, you know, like the Sater, Earth Terma, versus, you know, the Mind Terma, discovery happening through some sort of visionary revelatory process, dreams, waking visions, and the like. But you see both kinds of phenomena, I think, in the Indic materials, as well as the Tibetan. But I would also suggest, at least based on my reading of these passages, that both types also entail what we might call visionary types of experiences. Even, the, even in the cases where someone discovers, quote unquote, an actual physical text, there's visionary stuff going on. And going a bit further, drawing on the work of the anthropologist Tanya Lerman, you know, I would argue, and I'll get to this at the end, that you know, Lerman argues in her works that the practice of visualization actually leads certain types of susceptible individuals to have visionary experiences. 
And where else do we find such a focus on visualization practices than in tantric Buddhist traditions, right? So, so much of the practice focuses on visualization. And if you visualize a lot, and some of us here may have done that in our own personal experience, I have, may, may find that they've had visionary experiences as well, you know, perhaps triggered by these visualization practices. I myself had these sorts of experiences as well. Again, while an undergraduate studying intensively in Nepal, doing intensive meditation practice and visualization practice, I had a series of dreams as well as visions, including a dream in which Padmasambhava came and taught to me. Unfortunately, I woke up and couldn't remember a word of what he said. <laughs> a Nyingma Lama I was studying with at the time told me that this was because I wasn't yet a suitable vessel for the teaching, right? You know, my mind wasn't clear enough, pure enough. My concentration wasn't firm enough. Hence, I couldn't recall in the vivid details required to recover the visionary text. So I sometimes joke I'm a failed Tertum, although, of course, I'm not really. But anyway, but for certain susceptible individuals, of which I apparently am one, if you visualize a lot, you may find yourself having visionary experiences. And I, my suggestion is that if you look at the mythology, certainly in the Indian tradition, and I think in the Tibetan tradition too, you'll see these, these visionaries who, who have encounter deities and dreams, visions, recover texts and the like, of course, we're doing intensive meditation practice. So there, there very well may, may be a connection there. So that's basically what I'm gonna argue, but I drew out, I, I called up a couple of interesting texts that I just wanted to bring to your attention. You know, these are things that I've come across while working you know, on my book. This is the text I wanted to bring to your attention. Uh, this is, you know, from Amogavadra's account of Vajrabhuti's story about the origin of the, the so-called, you know, Guanding Jing, uh, I mean, Jingang, Jingang Ding Jing, the uh, adamant and pinnacle scripture, uh, which according to the tradition that Vajrabhuti recorded, Nagarjuna, you know, of course, our famed Bodhisattva for recovering lost texts, discovered this text in a iron sutra. Now I'm not gonna read this text, but I just wanted to bring to, to your attention a few details that I thought really interesting. On the one hand, this was the, the so-called, you know, or text, the massive version of the text, 100,000 stanzas long. Those of us who read these myths, you know, will come across the number 100,000 again and again, because, you know, of course, there actually was a Buddhist scripture that reached this, this, uh, this length, 100,000 verse Pragna Paramita Sutra. But uh, in tantric literature, we often read these reports of 100,000 verse scriptures. And it's, I, I just found very funny the description, how it was broad and long like a bed, four or five feet thick with innumerable verses. So this massive, massive or tantra. It must have been written in very large print because if you look at the, you know, Shatta Sahasrika Pragnaparamita in the Tibetan translation, I think it's eight or nine volumes long in the Kanjur. So a pretty big text, but not quite, you know, this vast. 
But of course, if you used a large enough font, large enough script, you could reach any size. So it was enclosed in Iron Stupa, South India. No one was able to open it because of its iron gate and locks. So in this, in this country, there was the so-called Great Worthy, who we later learn is Nagarjuna, although he's not mentioned by name in this text. So he you know, found the stupa, but he couldn't get in. So he recited the mantra of Mahavarochana, who manifested his body in a multitude of bodily forms in midair. So what is this? It seems to be a vision, right? You know, reciting uh, Mahavarochana's mantra, Mahavarochana in a kind of, you know, bewildering kind of manif bodily manifestation appears in the air, expounded the teachings along with its textual passages and lines. He told the great worthy to write it down and then, and then it was, when it was finished, he vanished. And this, 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 in a way, is the origin story for one tantric text, the essential rites for Virochana, the short or abridged version of the Adamantine Pinnacle Sutra, which Vajrabhuti translated and you know, presented to the Chinese emperor. The long version, 100,000 version of the collection we learn later was lost in a typhoon as he was traveling back from India to China. But that's, that's a whole nother story. So I wanted to bring this to your attention because I found interesting both the idea of there being this massive or text, but also the idea that even, even when discovering the massive physical text, right, there's a visionary experience that accompanies it. He couldn't get into the stupa, but he had a vision of Varochana who gave him the instructions, essential rites. And with these instructions, he was able to perform the ritual that enabled him to kind of magically open the locks, so to speak, on uh, the stupa. And uh, got in. Now, what did he do when he got in? Apparently, he didn't read the book. He chanted praises for this, this, you know, sovereign tantra or, you know, tantra raja, scripture king, as Orzek translates it. And uh, then he attained the obstructions of all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, and these he remembered and did not forget. Then he was commanded to go forth, you know, from stupa and close the gate. So in other words, he sat in front of the scripture, apparently reciting praises of it, and then apparently had another visionary experience in which he was taught by awakened beings, Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, doesn't tell us who, maybe Mahavarochana again, along with perhaps other figures from his, uh, from his, uh, from his mandala, perhaps. And so again, there's no taking of this, of the physical text. He, he doesn't even touch it as far as the myth tells us. He, he sits in front of it, he chants, he has another vision apparently, and then he goes forth having memorized the teachings, whatever they may be. Apparently the teachings on the 100,000 verse scripture, because according to Vajrabhuti at least, you know, Nagarjuna was the first person to kind of reveal this, you know, put it down into writing, so to speak. Vajrabhuti claims that he actually 
acquired a copy of the full 100,000 verse scripture in Sri Lanka, but then lost it, you know, en route back to China, being left only with the short, you know, uh, the short practice text that was the initial revelation coming to, coming to Nagarjuna. So this is, you know, one case, in this case, the disclosure of a of a yoga tantra, right? The discovery of a yoga tantra, apparently involving the discovery of an actual text, at least, you know, that's how this, the story seems to go at first glance. But if you look closely, you see these visionary, these visions, you know, surrounding the whole revelatory process, you know, an initial vision allowing him entry to, to gain access to the text. And then again, a later series of visionary teachings which lead to him securing the teaching in memory, apparently, and then, you know, moving off, leaving the bedside scripture in place, because as far as we know, uh, Nagarjuna didn't have super strength, but, although who knows, maybe he did, but <laughs> apparently he didn't touch that uh, big scripture, or if he did, the myth doesn't tell us so. So that's one story that I wanted to bring to your attention. Now here's another one. This is from Gyanamitra's, you know, commentary on the method of the perfection of wisdom and 150 stanzas. Very, very interesting text. Uh, you know, as you, as I'm sure many of you know, uh, Ron Davidson translated a, a portion of this in his, uh, you know, uh, in, in his book on Indian esoteric Buddhism. It's one of the probably the earliest kind of Indic text or to discuss the whole, you know, 18, the collection of 18 Mahayoga Tantras, you know, again, that Indo-Tibetan collection that's almost identical to the 18 text Adamantine Pinnacle collection that Moghavadra wrote about, which Vajrabhuti uh, partially, you know, brought back to China with him. So these early, you know, eighth century, you know, collections of 18 tantras, Gyanamitra was writing, I think, late eighth century, so a bit later than Moghavadra, but here again, a, a similar collection, including, you know, the, the Sarvabuddha Samayoga, Dakini Jala Samvara, Guya Samaja Tantra, you know, a few others, uh, Sri Paramadya. Now, this text tells us that uh, supposedly King Indrabhuti in Zahor, which as Davidson points out was, was likely, you know, Odiana, you know, Swat Valley, you know, Northwest India, not Bengal as, you know, some people have hypothesized, uh, that this scriptural collection manifested first to King Indrabhuti and members of his court because they were deemed to be suitable vessels. So again, they had the proper background and training to enable them to understand them. In theory, the texts appeared, the uh, Gyanamitra doesn't tell us exactly how, they came to King Indrabhuti, he was unable to understand them, so he requested the help of Master Kukura, who asked that the text be sent to him. The king obliged, and here's a direct uh, quote from the text, this is my translation. 
The scriptures arrived as he read them, but from beginning to end, they were unlike anything he had ever read, on account of which he collapsed without recourse. Exclaiming, I am without refuge, Sri Vadrasattva appeared and asked him what he desired. He said he wished that he could understand the scriptures just by reading them. Don't we all, right? <laughs> Particularly when reading tantras. Thus it shall be granted. Thereupon the meaning of these unopened texts of the Sarvabuddha, Samayoga, and so forth became directly apparent in his mind. I love that detail that the, the, the text has unopened texts, right? So he, I guess he'd gotten these texts, started reading them, couldn't make heads or tails of them, had a vision of Vajrasattva who granted his wish, you know, the wish of all students, right? To <laughs> be able to understand texts without even reading them, without <laughs> even opening in the text, but he was able to do so. So again, this is another myth of a kind of textual discovery of texts appearing, right? We don't know exactly how, because Ganamitra doesn't tell us, but texts appearing, people being unable to understand them, but then through, in this case, the grace of Vajrasattva, the yogi, uh, Kukura, gains kind of direct and immediate knowledge you know, of the text within his mind. So again, this kind of strong visionary dimension to a, in a myth, which is ostensibly about the discovery of physical texts, right? Physical texts being discovered or appearing and being revealed to the world. So this is yet another example of this sort of discovery. Now there's one other passage I wanted to bring to your attention of, of this sort of text. And this is from what I, what I suspect might be the earliest account of a, of a kind of tantric or Vajrayana kind of origin story in print. And that's from Yi Jing's, you know, records of eminent monks of the great Tang who sought the Dharma in the Western regions. And in this book, he recounts the stories of various Chinese monks who had traveled to India prior to Yi Jing's journey to India. He journeyed there and arrived in 671. I think he spent about 15 years in India, if I remember correctly. Now he tells the story of one Chinese monk named Daolin, who while in India encountered a a text called the Vidyadhara Pitaka, which I kind of loosely translate as wizardry collection, you know, taking Vidyadhara as wizards, right? These immortal, immortal kind of magical beings of tantric myth and lore, right? Who, you know, who, what are they most akin to in English language? Perhaps the wizards, right? Of, you know, of English folklore, you know, here I have in mind, like, you know, Tolkien's Gandalf, right? Immortal, capable of great feats, you know, so on and so forth. Maybe it's a bad idea. I'm, <laughs> I'm open to criticism. But this, this, uh, this is an interesting account of a text. Vidyadhara Pitaka, I should point out, was actually, you know, Matsunaga tells us, was actually the name of a of a fourth basket, you know, the, the Tripitaka, three baskets of Buddhist canon. Well, apparently the Dharma Gutta tradition proposed a fourth canon, the Vidyadhara Pitaka, the, 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 the basket or collection of spells as the kind of place where the magical lore, you know, the Raksha lore, the Dharanis, mantra collections that were growing 
within some, you know, Mahayana traditions or say around fifth, sixth, seventh uh, centuries uh, uh, as a place for them in the canon. And so this is the origin story of a text that has that name, but the name is a kind of generic name that could also be for, we might say, you know, the, the conjure, like, or the, the, the gyurbum or nigma gyubum, the kind of tantra section of the canon, so to speak. So again, this wizardry collection, Ravididharapitaka, what is it? Uh, Yi Jing tells us that in Sanskrit, it consists of 100,000 stanzas. Here we go, you know, 100,000 appearing again. And <laughs> where did it come from? It does, the text doesn't say, but it says after the death of the great sage, Nagarjuna mastered them. So the implication here, I think, is that maybe you know, Shakyamuni taught them and then, but then who did he pass it on to? Who kind of received this lore? Well, of course it was Nagarjuna. Uh, and he happened to have a disciple named Nanda who was steeped in this text. So Nagarjuna you know, passed on the lore to his disciple named Nanda. Uh, he spent 12 years practicing the spells where he, Pani experienced supernormal effects. So in other words, he achieved the cities, right? Whenever it was mealtime, food descended from space. You know, we read accounts like this and the stories of many, you know, great adepts in both the Indian, Tibetan, and Chinese, you know, lore. Also, once while reciting spells, he prayed for wish-fulfilling vase, which he attained after a little while. Within a jar, he found the scripture, which delighted him. But since he failed to bind the vase with a spell, it disappeared. Okay, another failed tertan here, right? <laughs> you know, you, you gain access to some magically appearing text, but if you don't follow the right procedure, right, you might lose it. So he, he, he lost it. Then perhaps fearing that all this great lore he got from Nagarjuna might be scattered and lost. He gathered them together, formed a single comp compilation of 12,000 stanzas, so a, a more reasonably length scripture. And that supposedly is what uh, Dowlin studied when he was in India. So again, an origin myth for a, for a tantric collection, in this case, the Vidyadhara Pitaka, which I don't think survived. I don't think this was ever translated into Chinese or Tibetan. Maybe I'm wrong. Tibetans sometimes use that same phrase of, you know, Vidyadhara Pitaka to refer generically to the kind of collection of tantras, at least some early Tibetan authors did. But I've, I've never encountered a reference to this text. Uh, oh, I've, I've there, I, I've encountered some references to it. Buddha Guya, another eighth century author, Buddha Guya ref, refers to it. He actually lists it as, as one of the Kriya Tantras, but to my knowledge, it wasn't translated, although maybe I'm missing something. So anyway, we have these stories of, you know, people discovering texts, uh, sometimes successfully or sometimes, you know, failing to successfully kind of capture them. But the visionary element I think is prominent in, in many of these accounts. But of course, you know, so far we're only really talking about, you know, earth terma sort of discoveries, you know, discoveries of actual physical texts. What about discoveries that entail, you know, other kinds of uh, 
other kinds of uh, of revelation. Let me see. One more I wanted to bring to your attention was Kanha's discovery of the Samputa Tilaka Tantra. This is, you know, according to Taranata's uh, hagiography. Here, I, I'm not going to translate anything, but just uh, just briefly go over it. This is a case of, you know, undertaking a physical journey to Pretapuri, somewhere on the Tibetan plateau. In this case, you know, Jalandaripa, you know, sent Kanha off to recover the Samputatilika from Yogini, from the Dakini Badri, told her she lived in Pretapuri. He uh, eventually found a derelict shack on a cliff overlooking a gray desert. He didn't recognize her at first, but eventually he did and, you know, discovered he was at the right place. She kind of magically transformed her shack into a, a mansion and granted him the text and the teachings. So this is kind of another, uh, I guess, Saterma sort of discovery, but in, in one involving a journey, like a, a pilgrimage to a sacred site. You know, Pretapuri is, you know, one of the 24 sacred sites in the, you know, Chakrasambara, you know, uh, Mandala at least, Chakrasambara pilgrimage route. But, uh, you know, recovering a text from a, from a Dakini. And of course, we all know the Dakinis play a big role in, uh, in the revelation of Tantras, you know, huge, huge role in the Nyingma tradition, as I'm sure everyone here knows. But they also play a role in the, you know, Indian tradition as well. Their celestial paradise, Kecharipada, is sometimes portrayed as a repository of esoteric lore. So again, we have accounts, you know, again, in this case, you know, Vilasavadra, you know, again, reported by Taranata, tells us that Vilasavadra traveled Odiana, where the Dakinis gave him temporary access to a treasury of tantras, permitting him to withdraw as many texts as he could memorize in seven days. He was able to memorize during this time, you know, Krishna Yamari Tantra and several other texts. So again, this idea of a kind of special treasury of tantras overseen by the Dakinis, they'll give you access to it, but you can't actually take any physical text, right? You have to memorize, just like Nagarjuna had to memorize apparently the 100,000 verse, you know, uh, adamantine pinnacle collection. Uh, uh, Vlasavadra was given seven days to memorize as many texts as he could from the Dakini's treasury. So, a final kind of account I wanted to bring to your attention is the story of Atisha's pride, which again features this idea of the Dakini's treasury. So, this is in his Namtargepa extensive biography. The biography lists at one point a, an astounding list of all of the tantras that Atisha knew. Now, Atisha, as I'm sure some of you guys, some of you all know, had his own kind of unique uh, classification or doxographical scheme of organizing tantras into sev seven categories action, performance, precept, dual, yoga tantra, maha yoga tantras, and unexcelled yoga tantras. 
And the biography gives us a long list of all the tantras know, all the tantras he knew in all of these classes, in all these classes. Here's what it says he knew about the unexcelled yoga tantras. He knew an uncountable number, but if you actually count them, that's you know, 12,000 tantras of 500,000 stanzas and so forth, the Sri Kasama, the great 100,000 stanza Chakrasamvara, Chattuspita, Mahamaya, Sarvabuddha Samayoga, Bodhakapala, Hevadra, and so forth, right? So huge number of texts, 12,000 of them, and not the simple abridged versions like Lagusamvara that, that we of the Kali Yuga need, but the, the massive, you know, or text versions of these texts. So he knew these tantras, but you know, one night he had a had a dream. Uh, well, he had a dream, but before he had a dream, he once offered to Bhagishvara Kirti a handful of gold to to uh, receive tantras from him, and he received ten thousand four hundred fifty-five tantras in one session. So, I mean, one hundred and forty-five tantras. I find that number so interesting because we get the 100,000 again, but added to it is a number that's very close to the number of tantras that are actually in Tibetan conjure collections. So <laughs> the, the paltry number of tantras that ordinary people know, 455 plus 100,000 on top of that. So again, an astounding number. And a pride rose in his mind. He thought no one is more learned in the Mahayana or in mantra than I. Thereupon one night, many Dakinis presented many volumes of tantras, asking him if he knew them. Of course, he didn't know any of them. There were a few little measly volumes off to the side. You know, he asked what they were and they said, these are the ones you know. So in other words, again, the Dakinis, you know, playing the role that's often given to them of you know, breaking down the pride of arrogant scholars, much like, you know, Naropa and life of Naropa, you know, the Dakini who challenged his understanding of the, the text that he was studying. Here too, Atisha, you know, gets challenged by the Dakinis and they demonstrate to him the, the uh, paucity of his knowledge. The message from this, of course, is that, you know, the Tantra, the, the, the Tantras, are you know uncountable there are countless of them that have been taught countless buddhas and all the various buddha realms have taught them and are teaching them again and again you know uh, in the moment so to speak and all you need to be able to access them is the ability to travel to those celestial realms to you know to visit them how do we do that well, here's chapter 39 of the Chakrasamvara Tantra, which actually gives a description of, of going to how you go to Kecharipada, right? And this is the chapter that, that introduces the uh, Eightfold Mantra, which is the, the laughter mantra, ha ha, he he, I forget, but a series of ha, you know, syllables, uh, which, uh, you know, emulates laughter. So the yogi of great power should lay down the Eightfold Mantra. He should have no doubt vision is imparted to him through that. The unbearable Dakinis terrify with many kinds of awesome sounds. If that hero is frightened, he trembles and runs away. 
But if that hero is not frightened and held by the left hand, he'll be led by them to their abode together with the Dakinis. Through devotion and desire for Sri Haruka, one's connected to the aerial state. Always delighting them, one will go to the land of, of bliss, Sukhavati. For the adept who has a mantra body, nowhere is there old age and death. So how do we get to Kecharipada? This is a very short little text, right? But it's, it's very suggestive in many ways. Lesson number one, I suppose, is right, you know, when the Dakinis come, don't freak out. <laughs> you know, don't be scared and run away. If you do, they'll devour you. So, you know, you don't want to do that. Instead, you have to, you know, know the lore, right? Know how to deal with the Dakinis. If you were, you know, steeped in kind of yogini tantra lore, you would know the, the secret signs, the, the uh, code, so to speak, uh, that you would need to communicate with them, the, the gestures, the, the, the symbolic language, so on and so forth to get on their good side. Uh, and then through devotion and desire to Shiharuka, you can be conducted to the aerial state. Now I wonder, at least I wonder what devotion and desire for Shiharuka might mean. And my, my suggestion is it probably means here you know, devata yoga, buddha yoga, you know, creation stage practice, you know, meditation on Sri Haruka, you know, visualizing yourself as Sri Haruka, you know, doing that sort of visualization practice. What else do you need? A mantra body, right? So you need to have developed that kind of training, contemplative training through creation stage, perfection stage practice to, you know, you know, dissolve yourself into emptiness, you know, re-arise in the form of the deity, do the body mandala practice, you know, laying down the mantras in the, in the inner body mandala, right? So, so that you generate the body mandala. Only then can you ascend through visionary journeys to places like Kecharipada, meet the Dakinis, meet the Buddha, and, uh, you know, directly receive the teachings. Uh, one of the commentators on this passage, Viravadra, he, recite, he interprets all of this in, ter in terms of a perfection stage practice. So being conducted to the aerial state, you know, and for him is a reference to the perfection stage process of unifying your psychic energy within your central channel and having the, the energy ascend the channel up to the point of Sukhavati, which is the Jalandhara, you know, point within the, the, the cerebral cavity. So in other words, you know, the so-called journey to the place of the Dakinis is a kind of visualized, imagined journey uh, taking place within one's mind. But if you do it properly, it may very well result in you know, ascending to celestial realms and possibly receiving revelatory teachings. I think at least that's what, what is promised. Now, unfortunately, we don't have that much detail within these, in these Indian tantric traditions, or at least if, they're, if the details are there, I haven't found them. Uh, we, we don't have the kind of rich kind of lore, biographical, autobiographical lore. We get stuff like, you know, in the blue annals, the lineage lists, like say Chakrasamvara was taught by, you know, 
Vajrapani to Saraha or by uh, Vajravarahi to Luipa. But how exactly did they teach th this? You know, how did these Mahasiddhas gain access to the scriptures? And we don't know. I wish we had that kind of information, but my guess is that it's likely much more of a visionary practice, you know, doing your meditation and having gaining a vision of, say, Vajravarhi or Vajrapani in a dream or in a kind of meditative state. Uh, again, I mentioned Tanya Lerman, you know, in her first book, Persuasions of the Witch's Craft, which was on ritual magic in contemporary England, she talks about her own experience. She, uh, she was studying with kind of contemporary kind of neo-pagan practitioners in England, learning the you know, witch's craft. And what this entailed, she, she describes, was basically the practice of intensive visualization. She learned series of kind of contemplations involving visualization that were taught to him by her, taught to her by her teachers. And she was doing these practices pretty intensively as part of her kind of anthropological field work. And she started having visions. You know, one night she had a, she was sitting in her apartment in London, she describes, and she had a vision of a, a group of druids, you know, <laughs> flying through the air, you know, outside her window. And uh, she writes about this both in that book as well as in her 2006 book, When Gods Talk Back. And one of the things she, she mentions is how visualization practice in particular can lead susceptible people to spontaneous visionary experiences. And by susceptible, susceptible individuals, she means people who score high on the, on the hypnotic susceptibility scale, which is a kind of test worked out by psych by, by, I guess, psychologists. Basically, it's a test to see how vivid your imagination is. And the, the more vivid it is, the more suggestible or susceptible you are, the more likely you are apparently to have spontaneous visions if you engage in these sorts of practices. Uh, so again, you know, when I was doing, when I was an undergraduate in Nepal doing every day, you know, practice focusing on Padmasambhava, the, Chidu sadhana, the sadhana, a basic sadhana where you visualize Padmasambhava as the unification of all of the konchok, all of the uh, refuges. Uh, doing that, you know, intensively, I started having dreams, Padmasambhava, for example, vivid dreams in which he would come to me. Was I a tertan? I don't think so. I, I certainly wasn't a successful one, but were I properly prepared, maybe I. I might've had a chance, I don't know. So in other words, you know, I can't prove this, but my suspicion is that, you know, doing the sorts of intensive contemplative practices that tantric traditions call for will lead some people, maybe not necessarily everyone, but some people to have powerful visionary experiences that may just lead to experiences of revelation, but not necessarily. Another book to take into account here is Gananath Obisikara's book, 2012 book, The, the Awakened Ones, uh, A Phenomenology of Visionary Experience. And one of the points he makes in this book, looking comparatively at, at visionary kind of figures, including the Buddha, is that the easy step is having the visions. The hard part that comes later is 
communicating your visions in a form that are meaningful to others, right? And certainly that was my experience, you know, <laughs> much, much harder <laughs> to do that, right? So my, my suspicion is, and I can't prove this, but my suspicion is if you look very carefully at this lore about the revelation of texts and Buddhist traditions, you'll, you'll find, I think, again and again, that visionary experiences play a key role in these, in these revelatory, you know, moments. And I guess that's it for now. Yes, thank you. That was very, very interesting. I remember a, a kind of seminar series that Tanya Lerman did in Oxford just before the lockdown, I guess. And she was a fascinating character. I'm, I'm, her work is very interesting. I corresponded with her a bit afterwards. I'm, I'm very glad you brought her up, you know. Uh, and uh, I'm very grateful as well for your mixture of anthropological and uh, uh, textual scholarship, which is really what we need in this subject. You know, neither one on its own can, can really address our problems. So if anyone's got any questions, uh...